This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Definitely the end of the road, at least for a chapter in the life of Fiat Chrysler. The company's European chief resigning after being passed over to place uh, ailing Sergio Marchioni as chief executive officer of the group. Mike Manley now is the new CEO. Lots going on. Let's get into this with our Tommaso Ebhart. He is Italy's senior reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us from Milan. He spent years keeping track of the man who turned around the automaker. We're talking about Sergio. Also with us is Rebecca Lindland, senior director, executive analyst at Kelly Blue Book. She joins us from Detroit. Tommaso, let's start with you. Jason and I both love this story uh, that you've got on the Bloomberg today, and you've written about your years chasing down Sergio uh, Marchionne. This was a non-car guy who came into a very tough situation, and he did really, really well. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, what, what he has done is uh, remarkable, you know, in terms of uh, value boost for shareholders and for investors. Uh, he took Fiat in 2004 when the company was essentially bankrupt. He turned it around. Then he did it again with Chrysler. He managed to, to form uh, the seventh biggest uh, car maker in, in the globe. Uh, in, in, in this uh, 10 years, uh, his 14 years journey at Fiat Chrysler, he managed to boost value by more than 10, 11 times for shareholders. So if you look at fully, you know, in terms of uh, uh, the financial of what he has, been, he has done is really, really remarkable. And even, you know, right. it, was a very, it was a very interesting story to, you know, follow him all over the globe for, for a decade for me. So Rebecca Lindland from Kelly Blue Book, I want to bring you into the conversation here. What does Mike Manley need to do to ensure for investors and for the industry that it's business as usual with this surprise announcement? Yeah, thanks, Jason. Well, first of all, um, absolutely sending thoughts and prayers to Sergio and his family. Yes. And such. It's, it's really incredibly mm-hmm. tragic. Uh, I think that, um, and Tommaso, I have to say, I, I teared up when I read your daughter Matilda's story. It was lovely. Um, but, you know, I think that... I, I think that what Mike really is facing is, first of all, obviously a much bigger job than he's had at Jeep and Ram, but he did masterfully at Jeep and Ram. So I think that he'll take a lot of what he's learned there. He'll take the global perspective that he has uh, and, and, and really try and execute on Sergio's legacy. Certainly losing Alfredo Altavela uh, and, and his experience running Europe, Middle East, and Africa is a big loss, but not entirely unexpected. You're always going to, going to have people like him who thought they might get the job then go on to other things when right. he, during this kind of transition. Tomasa, come back in because I have to say, uh, and I'm going to put your story out on, on um, Twitter 
at Carol Master because Rebecca's right. The way the story you write and your and you talk about your daughter and what Sergio ultimately did for your daughter, um, I got chills because it really just shows um, what a good guy he is. But he's also a tough, you know, worked like seven days a week, as you pointed out. I was at the Detroit Auto Show a couple times uh, at the press conferences with him, with Matt Miller, and and he's quite a riot. He's very he was very comfortable in this role. Um, you know what what are the challenges for any successor? And we you know and we are thinking about Sergio and his family, but for any successor, what they they have to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that what Rebecca said about Mike is, is quite right. So there were essentially there were essentially three main contenders for the job: Mike Manley, the the guy in charge of the most important operation of the group, Jeep, Richard Palmer, the CFO, the man who speaks with investor, and Alfredo Altavilla, who has been working with Sergio Marchione for you know forever. He has been uh, uh, working at Fiat forever. Uh, obviously. The resignation of Alfredo Altavilla today, you know, brings a little bit more uncertainty. I, you know, it was somehow expected. Maybe the timing, it was, you know, no one was expecting Altavilla to resign, you know, such in this dramatic hour, probably. Uh, but, uh, and what I'm hearing from, you know, people inside a company is that there is a good fit between Palmer and uh, Mali. Uh, because as Marciona used to say, my I won't have just one success, so my role somehow will be split by more than one. And probably Manley, with his you know skills of having creating such an enormous success of Jeep, just to give you two numbers, in 2009 Jeep sold 300,000 vehicles. This year is going to sell two million vehicles. So I mean, in terms of operation, Mike Manley is showing is showed with his. Uh, track record that he knows how to do it. And, and, and Palmer is, is, a, is a man well respected by the financial community. Uh, so the two together probably could, uh, you know, make a good job. Obviously, Marciano was, uh, you know, a, a, mm-hmm. a, a, a really a character, something that is very difficult. He, he created Fiat You know, he was half Italian, half Canadian. Uh, essentially, he had the, two, the North American culture and the Italian culture of the group together into one person. So it's very difficult to replicate this. But if you see at the shares reaction today, it's not dramatic. Now that that mm-hmm. shows because the succession was already in place. Uh, you know, it, it, it's coming nine months before expected. But you know, somehow they were very close to do it. If you wanna, if you you, you can compare with Ferrari, where the share reaction was was much worse today, because Marchione was supposed, it was meant to stay another five years at Ferrari. This is a company where, you know, the, the succession process was not so advanced. So, Rebecca, just about 20 seconds left. What's the opportunity or the challenge for the competition in this case? Look outside, uh, outside of this company briefly for us. Well, the competition is really, you know, they're already strides ahead in some ways when you think about uh, about electrification, mobility as a service. Right. So I think that there's opportunities, for, you know, for competitors to move further ahead Got it. Uh, while the company scrambles a bit. Rebecca Lindland at Kelly Blue Book and Tommaso Ebhardt, Italy senior reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Milan. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets, Carol Master, Jason Kelly, and this is Bloomberg. Uh, 
Uh, the private world. Private Idaho. Private equity is what we're talking about here with Vinny Catalano. He's the chief investment officer at Redmount Capital Partners and also the co-founder and member of Adriatic Capital Partners. Joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City. Vinny, great to be with you. Great to be uh, here. Thank you, Jason. Well, you have a great radio voice. <laughs> well, radio. I, I'm, I'm, Man, just... I'm not used to that. I, mean, I, I am with Carol, but wow, I'm just trying geez. to keep up with Carol Masser every day, every day. Uh, so private equity, one of my right. favorite absolute topics for sure. Mm-hmm. Your argument is that it is underappreciated, literally and figuratively, True. in a portfolio versus the public markets right now. Tell Ab- us about a- that. Absolutely. Uh, an increasing number of institutional investors are following Warren Buffett's lead, and they're increasing their exposure in private equity. Uh, and, and one of the reasons for that is that private, uh, publicly traded companies are afflicted with what I call a disease, and that disease is short-termism. Now, short-termism, I don't mean by high-frequency trading and things of that sort. I'm talking about uh, short-term-oriented quarterly reports, things of that sort. It's a bummer to be a publicly held company. Uh, it's it's pretty tough, absolutely. So uh, you look at private equity, and it offers a lot of advantages uh, to alleviate that short-termism. And uh, But the issue is how do you blend that private equity position into a publicly – predominantly a publicly traded uh, portfolio? Well, and, and short-termism versus long-termism is something we've heard Larry Fink from BlackRock talk a lot about of late. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that always comes up here is – the fees on the private equity side versus what you have to pay sure. uh, for the public equity side. So what's the secret to making sure you're getting an affordable mm-hmm. or or a private equity uh, allocation that, that's worthwhile? I would look at the rate of return vis-a-vis the risk that you're taking. And if the rate of return that you're receiving, uh, net of fees – uh, reaches a benchmark that you consider to be acceptable, and that generally is going to be in a 20-plus 20 pr- 20 percent range, mm-hmm. then, you know, yeah, let them collect the fees and, you know, but just make sure that what you're doing is, uh, you know, what they're doing in managing your money is it is uh, successful that you're able to generate those kinds of rates of return. Unfortunately, too many I'm, tr- I'm trying to think, Jason, what was it? Was it the not the year ahead, but we had, I thought, one of the key guys at Blackstone Group and talked mm-hmm. about private equity and yep. wanting to open it up, you know, to a wider array of investors and really sure. kind of individual investors. And so that's great, right? Yeah. You know, kind of more access. What I do wonder about, though, is I feel like there's family home offices, there's private equity. There's so many folks chasing P.E. deals mm-hmm. that I wonder what that does to valuations and that investors have to be very careful about that. Uh, absolutely. Two words. Due diligence. Make sure that the private equity firm that's doing the deal is structuring the deal, that's sourcing the deal, that they have executed uh, the proper kind of due diligence because that can be ultimately a killer. You can end up with a a poorly constructed deal. Uh, Surprises come along, and then it's like, lo and behold, you know, wow, I didn't know that was going to happen. So uh, that's a big part of it. And then sourcing deals, finding the values that are there. Uh, I have an individual that I know that I work with, and he says if it's not a good deal, we don't do it. And and you so you have to be very discriminating. To so be willing to walk away. Exactly. You have to be willing to walk away. You know what it is? It's a lot like home run derby. 
okay, as opposed to regular bat. You don't have to swing, okay? You just wait for your pitch to come in, wait for your pitch to come in, find the opportunities that are there that are worthwhile vis-a-vis the risk that you're going to be taking, and and that's what you should really uh, uh, concentrate and focus on. So, Vinny, I have to ask you, you know, based on that, you know, we, we hear a lot about returns starting to come down a little bit. Some mm-hmm. some of that based on the competition uh, that, that Carol is discussing, you know, part of it is just this huge amount of dry powder that has amassed uh, in the private equity world. True. You know, given that to get the types of returns you're talking about, those 20 plus percents, you really need to be in that top quartile, if not sort of the top decile, right, mm-hmm. uh, of private equity firms. How hard is it to break into those? Those big names that can deliver the big results. Uh, okay, if we're talking about uh, middle market type deals uh, in a range that I and my partners are involved with, then we're talking about in the let's say half a million to ten million dollar range. And if you're in that range, then you have to uh, you can find those deals. We're not talking about monster deals, you know, mm-hmm. Warren Buffett sized deals right. or you know Calpers. But there's or a lot like that's that. small to mid, especially that's that right. mid cap space. That's right. But that's where you come back to due diligence. You really have to do the work. You really have to invest. Investigated, uh, and and one of the one of the things to be very sensitive to, and I've already experienced this on more than one occasion, and that is where you end up uh, in the pursuit of a deal uh, that you end up being the stalking horse, that they end up using you. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you're shaking your head, Jason. Yeah, that you end up using you uh, as a um, you know as, as as a point of reference, like in the case of some of the work that we've done over in uh, South Central Europe. Uh, hey, we've got American investors to play off They're, of and you, and yeah. they play off of that, and then lo and behold, somebody comes in and they make a deal, and then it's, then then you poof, then your deal is gone. Well, and it's such an interesting point about the middle market as well, because I think we spend, and I'm guilty of this as anyone, uh, as guilty of this as anyone. You know, you talk about the Blackstones and KKRs and Carlisles mm-hmm. of the world who really have blossomed into much more than private equity firms, for better or worse. You know, they're mm-hmm. really alternative asset managers. The guys who have stayed, they mostly are guys. Let's be honest. Uh, in this kind of monoline, private equity, more classic leverage buyout mm-hmm. world, still are probably delivering the sorts of returns you're talking about on a more more often, it feels uh, like. That is correct. And also, if we can just elaborate for a second, private equity, when we're saying private equity, I'm defining it in the broadest possible terms. It can involve things like venture capital. Right. It could be distressed debt. It could be equity positions, yeah. et, et cetera. The so, distress so, space is really kind of interesting. The distress space is excellent, yeah. <laughs> especially yeah. if you can find a, a situation uh, such as we did with a bank that broke apart uh, their 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 debt, and what they did was they, they created this good bank bad bank situation. Right. And the bad bank part of it, it was basically the mandate was get rid of this stuff, <laughs> and and get rid of this stuff means that you can buy things uh, very attractively. But having said all of that, you still have to come back to due diligence, doing the work, and then on an ongoing basis. You know, managing the properties. But again, uh, who has access to this? I mean, again, does it have to be accredited investors? Does it go back to that? That or is what? correct. Yes. In fact, we did uh, for the most part. Okay. We we also did uh, when we did a segment here way back when, Carol, mm-hmm. with uh, Lawrence Calcano, right. My Capital yep. Network. I mean, that that becomes a channel uh, for uh, accredited investors to go, so they don't have to be you know locked out of opportunities and deals that are there. What we're focusing on in Redmount is is concentrating on the the middle markets area, finding those unique opportunities, and we're very discriminating uh, uh, over uh, you know we'll be very right. selective with that. Right. So, yeah. All right. 
Vinny Catalano, I could talk about private equity all day, as is clear. Chief Investment Officer at Redmount Capital Partners. Come back and see us. Really appreciate it. Love to. Thank you. I've seen a few crumbling walls around New York, haven't you, when it comes to infrastructure, Jason? Absolutely. Crumbling walls mean big money, or at least they were meant to bring uh, big money into the picture. Jillian Tan is a senior reporter here at Bloomberg. We trust her because she is a scoop machine. Every big (laughs) private equity and real estate deal that has come across the the Bloomberg wires over the past couple months has Jillian's name all over it. And recently she has dug into, pun intended, Carol, uh, the infrastructure boom that sort of hasn't been. Jillian joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in Manhattan. Jillian, what's going on out there with infrastructure? Yeah, so as we've seen, a lot of the big institutional investors are raising record funds. Uh, we've seen Blackstone in the market with a $40 billion fund, which would be the biggest ever. We reported and they confirmed last week in their earnings they've raised $5 billion so far uh, towards this effort. But what's really interesting is that a lot of the money won't end up in those crumbling roads or bridges. It'll end up maybe going towards assets that are already owned by other funds. What's right, up? just sort of a trade that, that seems to be yeah. happening among the big investors rather than you know getting airports in workable shape or roads that filled with potholes, right? Why isn't it happening? A little bit because a lot of the states and local governments are sort of disincentivized to run processes because the federal government was for all intents and purposes, going to give them federal matching dollars for whatever they might raise from these private groups. And that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened. Trump put out a plan in February. They're now not going to look at that. Congress is now not going to look at that until after the midterm. So there's been a bit of a hesitation um, from some states and local governments. However, we've seen St. Louis. They've got their uh, deal on the runway. You see what I did there. Um, (laughs) So that's one airport deal that could come together. And then JFK is another situation where a lot of uh, groups are around the terminal redevelopment rather than the the whole airport itself. And what I find so interesting about this in part is that this has happened – Overseas, I mean, Global Infrastructure Partners, GIP, uh, that Jillian is very familiar with, you know, they have made a big difference and, more important to their investors, made a huge amount of money buying and selling airports, specifically in the UK. London City was one that they bought and uh, and turned over just in the last year or so. Uh, but they have done the vast majority of their deals outside the United States. So why is it easier abroad than it is here in the U.S. Is it that local and and municipal issue? Yeah. So even in the U.K., it's a federal government. You know, the government is willing and sort of backing this type of private investment coming into the market. You can hear from my accent, I'm from Australia. The Australian government has also been very welcoming of this private capital and sort of got an incentive out to all the states who sort of raced against each other to sort of see who could sell what first. Can I – what I'm curious is why – I understand that by having the government match money, it gives you more money to play with. Why, though, aren't the projects just going ahead on private money? Is it just not as lucrative or is it because there's not as much funds? What, what? So there's an interesting wrinkle in the U.S. Uh, a lot of the states they don't, or cities, they don't need private money. They have municipal bonds. So that's ah. something that is not available in other markets. Like the, the market for infrastructure bonds is not as deep anywhere else in the world than the U.S. So that's sort of 
uh, a push and pull for the private investors looking to put money to work. So, Jillian, for institutional investors out there, you know, put us put this in the context of other so-called alternatives: private equity, hedge funds, real estate. How does it fit in in terms of allocation? How does it fit in in terms of returns, current income, those sorts of issues? Yeah, so I guess it's definitely a lower return than a private equity. Um, offering. It's, I guess, on par to what real estate would be. It's a lot of times the pensions that's looked at by the real assets partners. So mm-hmm. they're lumped with real estate, natural resources, infrastructure, timber, that type of thing. Um, and maybe you'd see anywhere from 8 to 13% net of fees. Which still feels pretty good in a normal market, I guess, you know, the sorts of returns people are getting in public public equities right now, maybe it's a little less attractive, but there's also often a, a current income piece that that uh, looks good to folks as well, right? Yeah, folks really like the yield appeal. So if you think of a toll road, there's, you know, that very sort of stable, I guess, unless there's a massive recession and people stop driving or, you know, a lot of these investors have to think to the future of maybe driverless cars and as technology changes, hmm. how infrastructure will change. But for now, at least there's sort of the stable idea of toll roads or if uh, in Chicago there's a parking meter station right. type type of revenue that's very stable and predictable. So in this story, you talked about, what, 40 infrastructure funds, $450 billion at the end of last year from just $7 billion, I think, in 2000. Forgive me if I didn't update them correctly. So what happens to that money? Does it just sit? Yeah, so right now a lot of that money is just sitting, but a lot of it will end up sort of going towards, I guess, whether it's data centers or towers or energy pipelines. or I'm not going to get... A better bridge to cross around here, another tunnel to maybe go through, or an airport? You might. So there are more public-private partnerships, but a lot of the money will probably end up in, they're called, I guess, secondary deals, where someone's sort of passing the parcel to each other, like a desalination plant, Has anybody driven around the roads around here? I'm just saying. It it is amazing, too, and both of you know this very well, how much this felt like something that everyone could agree on from a political perspective. You know, Democrats have often gotten behind infrastructure when President Trump, uh, you know, was campaigning and then came into office, this seemed like, you know, as much of a no-brainer as anything uh, we've ever had. Jillian Tan, senior reporter at Bloomberg, all things infrastructure, private equity, alternative. Thanks so much for joining us. Family... Our family office, Eric Schatzker, joining us right now. He, of course, is editor-at-large here at Bloomberg. He got the big interview of the day, the breaking news uh, this morning that Leon Cooperman would convert to a family office his Omega hedge fund. He is one of the biggest names on Wall Street, certainly, when it comes to hedge funds. Uh, Not surprisingly, the most read story on the Bloomberg over the last eight hours. And Eric, you got him on the phone for what was a really wide-ranging and at times emotional interview. A revealing look at Lee Cooperman. He goes by Lee, so I'm going to call him Lee, although, as you point out, his real name is Leon, and he has been uh, in the hedge fund industry for as long as most people can remember. He started Omega Advisors back in the early 1990s after having been, I believe, the first CEO at Goldman Sachs Asset Management and a Goldman partner for 25, well, not 25 years, but at Goldman for 25 years. He got his start in investing back in the go-go days, the late 60s. Amazing. So Lee Cooperman (laughs) has pretty much seen it all, and he is... As they say back where I come from, hanging up the skates, if you prefer hanging up the high tops or hanging up the cleats, but he is turning Omega into a family office and will be redeeming some of his investors' capital. He's going to keep 
some two to three billion dollars, he says, of his own money invested. So he is exiting the money management business, but not exiting the investing business. And unlike an unlikely catalyst for this decision, apparently, at least according to the letter, Mr. Kenny Rogers. Yes, right. No one to hold him, no one to fold him. Kenny Rogers admitted to not folding him at the right time. And Lee Cooperman does not want to make that same mistake. He says it's not for health reasons. Now is a good time to turn into a family office. Why? In part because his investors are at an all-time high. As Lee himself told me, he doesn't want to be chasing a high watermark at the age of 77, a high Mm -hmm. watermark being the point at which your investors were at a high. And if you're below the high watermark, you can't charge them fees, performance fees. Anyway, I think it's worthwhile, though, giving people um, a sense of what Lee Cooperman was like in this interview and some of the things that he has to say about the future of his industry, the hedge fund industry. Should we play an excerpt? Yeah, let's let's do do that. In an era of fee compression, what should a hedge fund manager charge? <laughs> well, I was one of 15 for the bulk of my money, you know, so... I so you were, know. A good, you were a good deal? Uh, well, you know, I, I could have been one of 15 and lost people money, so that wouldn't be a good deal. You know, I, it, uh, I would say that uh, 2 and 20 is uh, part of the past, not part of the future. It's uh, too aggressive uh, in, a, in a world of low returns. But, you know, the money goes where money is treated best. And, you know, if somebody can produce a record uh, risk-adjusted that uh, is far superior to the market, then they're going to be worth 2 and 20. You know, I felt the higher your fees, the more pressure you put in yourself. And I don't have to put any more pressure on myself than I already have. And he's had a great record. Lee Cooperman has generated uh, a since inception a return, an annual average return for investors north of 12%. Better than the S&P? That's off. A good deal better than the S&P. And it speaks to – but it does in a certain – to a certain degree speak to what life was once like mm-hmm. for an equity short um, – equity long short hedge fund manager, which is what Lee Cooperman does. Once upon a time, there were so many inefficiencies in the market that people like Lee could capitalize upon them. Those efficiencies are largely arbed out in many cases by computers today. It's getting much harder – and let's not forget the backdrop of central bank intervention and the sort of the rising tide that's lifted all boats. It's mm-hmm. getting much harder for value investors, and that's what he is, right. a value investor. He did his MBA at Columbia, the Graham and Dodd School of Investing. Um, it's it's harder for those people. Look at David Einhorn. Look at Bill Ackman. Look at John Paulson, for example, all of whom command Lee's respect, all of whom he believes will have their day in the sun once again. But it's getting awfully tough for their investors, even though life has been better for the clients of Omega. So Lee Cooperman joins the likes of George Soros, Stan Druckenmiller in converting to a family office. What moment are we – what moment are we at in terms of the conversion of the lions of the industry? We're going to see more and more of it. I think that's that's a certainty. Why? In part because these people are getting older. Mm -hmm. And while Lee says – his investors have been good to him. Uh, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And truth be told, it wasn't always the case with him either. When he had his issues with the SEC, when the SEC accused him of insider trading, a number of his institutional investors decamped permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of these people don't like dealing with investors. Some of them are concerned about the returns that they can generate going forward, like Stan Druckenmiller was. Stan remains a great investor, but he didn't think that he could live up to his reputation. And given the fact that it is getting harder to generate returns, yes, we may see that happen more and more. 
And again, these people are getting older. They were among the lions of the industry in its early days. And eventually, you know, they, they want to go out to the uh, to put themselves out to pasture a little you got, bit. you got to know when to fold them. Uh, the whole interview you can check out at Bloomberg.com because there's some real emotional parts and where he talks about his background as well. It's really a, a wonderful interview. Eric, thank, thank you so you. much for, for dropping by. Eric Schatzker, editor-at-large at Bloomberg News. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. I'm Carol Master along with Jason Kelly. Randy Watts back with us, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill & Company in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you here again. Thanks, Carol. Thanks for having me back. You know, Jason and I were saying, God, it's kind of a quiet day. Stocks aren't doing much. You are taking a look at the markets technically. When you do that, what are you seeing? So we're, we're bullish on the market technically right now. The S&P 600, which is the S&P small cap index, the Russell 2000, and the NASDAQ are all up double digit for the year. And all are essentially at all-time highs, having broken out of out in May and having moved through their resistance. Uh, support for all three is at their 50-day moving averages, which is 2 to 3% lower than it currently they currently are trading. And all are trading below their positively sloped long-term channel averages. Also, all three are under accumulation right now in our accumulation and distribution measure. So what does it mean when small caps are rallying and outperforming the larger cap or even mid-cap indices? What does it tell you about kind of where we are in the equity market cycle? I would say it's positive in two senses. First, uh, breadth is positive in the market. If you look for at For small the, caps or overall? Uh, overall. Okay. Overall, but particularly for small caps, I think uh, something like close to 70% of stocks in the uh, Russell are currently above their 200-day moving average. That's a bullish sign. And historically, that's also a good sign for the U.S. economy and for earnings. So you said the magic word, earnings. We started <laughs> last week. This week, as we've been talking about, is the big week, something like 40% of the S&P 500 reporting. What's the mood so far? Uh, so far, it's very good. Uh, 18% have reported. Uh, as you mentioned, 35% are scheduled to report this week. This is actually the busiest week of earnings mm -hmm. season. So far, the numbers have been good. 85% of the companies that have reported in the S&P 500 have beat. That compares to 76% for all mm. of last quarter. Currently, sales are coming in around 9%. That's a 1% beat. And earnings are coming in about 22% growth. That's about a 4.5% beat. Wow. So does that – okay. So, Randy, does that say to you – because there are some folks who say sometimes they look at the valuation of the market and they say, well, we're getting a little pricey. Does what we're seeing in terms of earnings and revenue, top and bottom line, momentum, support the valuations that we're seeing? Because the other thing I want to throw in there is earnings can change kind of quickly. So we can have momentum and then all of a sudden we don't. That's, that's very true. Uh, let me make two comments here, please. The first is that earnings estimates for the S&P 600 now are about $160 this year and about 176 for next year. That means the S&P 500 is trading at about 15.8 times next year's number. We don't think that's particularly expensive given the double-digit earnings growth we're forecast to have this year mm -hmm. and next year. 
The other thing we like so far this earnings season is that companies that report positive earnings are being rewarded with a move up in their stock price. Companies that are that are positively surprising are seeing their stocks trade up about 1% on the day they report. We think that's a good sign of a healthy market. Mm. And why is that? And give us some historical context there. Why does that impress you? Um, because we believe long term that the market is really driven by earnings, yeah. and that's what drives stocks higher. You know, last quarter stocks didn't react quite as positively to the earnings beats, even though they were very good. Last quarter, the average S&P uh, 500 company beat sales by about 1.5% and beat earnings by about 4.9%. So we're, we like the fact that the beats this quarter are of a similar magnitude and stocks are moving higher on that. But we why think did, that's a bullish sign. Why didn't we get it? La- if you're saying it's a bullish sign and that stocks ultimately do trade on earnings and revenues, why didn't it happen last quarter? I think for a variety the previous of, quarter. I think for a variety of factors, investors are entering this this earnings season maybe a little bit less optimistic. If you look at the Investors mm-hmm. Intelligence uh. Bullish Bear Survey, yeah. it's about 50% bulls right now, so not in an extreme. So our expectations and, were really low. Expectations lower. were lower going into this earnings season, and yeah. I think you're seeing that as a result, in stocks, Microsoft being a good example for, for, for one of where companies do put up good numbers, the stocks are really rewarded. Well, and this week will really be the test of this, right? I mean, given the bulk of, I mean, starting with Alphabet today in just a few minutes, we're, gonna, we're about to see whether uh, the, this big chunk of earnings can support what we've seen so far. A- absolutely. We've got, we've got companies like, like Alphabet and Facebook, et cetera, reporting this, this week. So this is kind of an important week for the market to continue its upward trend. They have to see good numbers. So far, we've gotten them. And as you look at what companies are saying, not just in their numbers, but in some of the commentary, there seemed to be a, a lot of angst going into this quarter, maybe, uh, and maybe this was reflecting some of this pessimism or, or caution around tariffs and trade and whatnot. Is it just too soon to see that playing through, or is it less of an issue uh, than people might have thought? Uh, I would say it's it's a little bit too soon, but it's also remember the magnitude of what tariffs have actually been put in. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of things discussed, but the actual amount that's been fully implemented is very small. So I think that's a risk that has the market nervous in the future, but it's not a big impact to this earnings season or really next. Randy, I do want to ask you about the Nasdaq. You sent along a chart that says the Nasdaq is the strongest over the past two weeks and is back at an all-time high as of Thursday. Uh, we've got the Nasdaq up about almost 16% from early February. We've had a bounce back. Are we seeing, um, in terms of the moves up in technology, is it fairly widespread or is it, again, just concentrated in a few names? I, I would say that in the large caps, it's been a, it's been a little, little narrower, obviously, within the S&P uh, 500. Uh, you know, 21 stocks could, could could account for the entire gain of the index year to date. Okay, but we are hopeful that in the last eight weeks, as some other groups have started to participate, retail and healthcare, that this earnings season is going to see a broadening of performance in large cap. Are investors more defensive, or the the moves up in terms of sectors? Is it more defensive, or is it um, a lot more? Uh, you know. Uh, Cyclical. Uh, what recently, it's been, I think, more growth-oriented with growth in the last oriented. eight weeks, healthcare and tech doing better. Before that, we had seen a lot of defensive groups doing well, huh. like staples and like utilities. The fact that some of these growth groups are doing better to us is a sign yeah. of a healthier market because we don't think the market can move appreciably higher with the defensive groups leading. Randy Watts, I always love talking to you. Lots of numbers, lots of information. He is Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist over at William O'Neill & Company. This is Bloomberg. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 